I'd invite you to join with me in reading responsively question 123 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's our confession. It comes from Lord's Day 48. The end of the Heidelberg Catechism is looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we've been doing that over the last several weeks. And we're up now to the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. So let's read uh, responsively together. What does the second petition mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that we more and more we submit to you. Preserve your church and make it grow. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. And then we're going to read from Matthew 6 once again. It's the the story or part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about what it... uh, what it means to pray. He actually, in, Ma- in uh, the first half of Matthew 6, is talking about the three elements of Jewish worship, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And he spends most of the time on prayer. I'm going to read verses, chapter 6, verses 5 through 13 of Matthew 6. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they receive their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, I pray that we might understand better your kingdom and what it means to pray for your kingdom to come. And then we might be challenged to not only pray for your kingdom, but work for your kingdom in our daily lives. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been studying the Lord's Prayer for the last few weeks, and we've learned that the context in which we pray is to our Father in heaven. That reminds us of two things. It reminds us of God's intimate relationship with us, but it's also tempered by the fact that he is in heaven. He is the sovereign king. And as such, it means that God wants to listen and act on our behalf as father, and that he also has all power to deliver what we need as sovereign king. And because of who he is, then, we looked at the first petition of the Lord's Prayer last week, that we pray committing ourselves to honor or sanctify his name by our thoughts, words, and actions. Now, these actions come out most particularly in the next two phrases of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And in actuality, these two are intimately connected together. They're like a Hebrew parallelism. In Hebrew parallelism, uh, often the same ideas advance twice, but the the second one just adds to it even more, and we see that happening here. So they're really tied together. The one goes with the other, and we'll be talking about that, but I'm going to look at them separately because each deserves its own time. So first, what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? Brad Young, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, states, Probably no other aspect of Jesus' teaching has been so greatly misunderstood as the kingdom of heaven. Certainly no other theme is more essential for understanding Jesus. This idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a concept that's at the very heart of the Jewish faith, but not just that, it's at the very heart of Jesus' ministry and mission. In fact, the very thing that John the Baptist says in introducing Jesus is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes on the scene in one of the Gospels. The very first thing he says is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he teaches his disciples to be preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not to mention all of the different parables that Jesus told that begin, the the kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. So if this is such a key theme in Jesus' mission and ministry, we need to spend a little time defining the kingdom before we get to what does it mean to pray for it. Kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven are really the same phrase. Uh, Let me just explain that a little bit. The, The Jews didn't like to use the name for God either Lord or God, because if they didn't use it, they couldn't misuse it and therefore sin against one of the commandments. And so they used euphemisms. And one of the favorite euphemisms for God was heaven. So when Jesus says kingdom of heaven, he's really saying kingdom of God. Now, we get both phrases in the Gospels because some Gospel writers are writing to the Jews who understand that very well. Others are writing to the Greeks who don't understand that, and so they have to translate it, kingdom of God, rather than kingdom of heaven. But this phrase is actually a phrase that's not found as such in the Old Testament. It really comes up, the concept comes up, and is developed more in the intertestamental period by the precursors to the Pharisees. And as they worked on this concept, it became, the kingdom of God became a spiritual term. It's a spiritual term. Now, sometimes it's easier to explain what something is by saying what it isn't. So let me just look at some misperceptions of the kingdom. Modern Christians often have different ideas about the kingdom. The kingdom might be seen variously as the age to come, eternity, heaven. In other words, future-oriented. Now think about that. If that's the case, that the kingdom is only future-oriented, then when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for something that has yet to happen at all. And I want to suggest to you that that that's not the case, that that this particular definition is too time-specific and too futuristic, too otherworldly. But just the opposite... Some people see the kingdom as an earthly political rule. Many in Jesus' day had somehow gotten this picture that Jesus was the Messiah. 
that would establish Israel as a world power in the land. But that definition is too this worldly. Some just see it very generically as God's providential rule over all creation, and that's probably too general. So what is it? George Alden Ladd, who you probably aren't familiar with, but you probably are familiar with a term he coined, said a number of years ago that the kingdom is already, not yet. Already, not yet. This is the idea that the kingdom has come in part in Jesus' first coming, but will not come fully in all its glory until his second coming. And this is definitely Jesus' view, but we can actually flesh it out even more. Jesus taught the kingdom of God as three things, really. First, the kingdom of God is God's rule. God's rule. Over the world, yes, but more specifically over his people. The rabbi said, in, as they were developing this, this concept of the kingdom, that the kingdom is the rule of God over a person who keeps or begins to keep the commandments. They felt that if a person confessed God as Lord alone, now that's their great confession, right? It's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. That he is the only God. If you could make that confession, then that person came under the kingdom of God. They came under the rule of God. They came under uh, the kingship of God. And then having accepted God's authority over them, then those people could begin to keep his commandments. Jesus talks about that a little bit a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 21, when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So according to Jesus' definition, kingdom is limited to those who follow him, to those who, who bow the knee to God, who, those who are seeking to do God's will. But the kingdom is not just about God's rule. It's also about his power. Because the kingdom was seen by Jesus as an active force in the world. Energized by God's power. A force that seeks to bring about healing and salvation. And that comes out most noticeably in Jesus' growth parables. The mustard seed. The yeast. Both of which grow exponentially. They don't, they don't really grow because anyone's done anything. God has given them the power, the energy within themselves to just, just grow far bigger than they started out. And that's true with the kingdom too. God energizes his kingdom to grow without anything happening externally. Although he does want us to work at it externally. But there's an energy already in the kingdom. And we see the gradual progression then of the kingdom movement. You see that especially in the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Again, we said those two are linked together. Where God's kingdom is, there his will is being done. Again, what Jesus has just said in Matthew 7, verse 21. It's not just about those who say, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Your kingdom Come, your will be done. They're linked together. 
So a kingdom depicts the power of God that is going to continue to extend his rule even if we don't lift a finger toward the kingdom. God can extend his rule and does extend his rule himself. But he wants God's people involved as well. And that's the third thing the kingdom is. The kingdom also speaks of those who have come under God's rule. They are those who do God's will and carry on the active uh, work of the kingdom in his power. So Jesus' disciples are always expected to extend and expand and spread the reign of his kingdom. So Jesus gives them the commission. He says, says that I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. And he says before he ascends into heaven in Acts 1 verse 8, go to Jerusalem, yes, and even Judea, and yes, even Samaria, but also go to the ends of the earth. The kingdom is going to grow, but it grows not only through God's power, but by God energizing and using his people. And again, the two phrases of the Lord's Prayer are synonymous. People come into the kingdom when they accept God's authority over them, and then as they also begin to do his will. So when Jesus lays out, for example, the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount or the commandments on the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying that those who are part of the kingdom will take on that character and follow those commands. That is, when you read the Beatitudes, it's not just kind of a list of this is what I need to do. It's more a list of this is who I am as a member of the kingdom. This is what a kingdom person looks like. And then when Jesus goes on to explain the commandments, that's what a kingdom person is supposed to do, to do God's will. So all that background to say, what does it mean for us to pray your kingdom come? Well, we've been looking a little bit at Jewish prayers because they were Jesus' prayers, the disciples' prayers. And they're instructive for helping us understand not only what Jesus means, but also how he and his disciples prayed. The second great statement of the Kaddish, the Jewish prayer in the synagogue, is quite similar to this one. May God establish his kingdom during your life and during your days. May God establish his kingdom. So they were praying for the very same thing, and we see it throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The Jewish people, first and foremost, prayed not for individual needs. What is often our greatest prayer focus, our needs and wants, doesn't get a lot of time in Jewish prayer. In fact, the, the hundred blessings a good Jew was supposed to say every day were not, oh, I need that, oh, I really want that, but, oh, God, Praise you for this beautiful creation. Oh, God, praise you for that beautiful sunset. Oh, God, praise you for that person. It's all about blessing God, not about asking for our wants and needs. Now, they could and did ask for things, as Jesus will talk about later in the Lord's Prayer. But that was not their prayer focus. Secondly, their prayer focus was not spiritual escapism. When they prayed for God's kingdom, they didn't pray, Lord, take me out of this cruddy world that I'm living in right now and bring me to heaven. That's not what they were praying. They weren't praying in Gentile fashion to escape the material earth into the spiritual world. That was actually the philosopher Plato who had that idea. They weren't praying, oh, release me from this 
endless cycle of reincarnation. That's Hinduism. No, they weren't praying anything about release me from this world. They anticipated the coming of God's kingdom on earth. They anticipated the coming of God's kingdom on earth. And they anticipated a bodily resurrection. Were they wrong? Just look at Revelation 21 and 22. When John is, sees a picture of the, our, our eternal future, where's the kingdom coming? Down. It's coming down like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. It's the new heavens and the new earth. That's the picture of the kingdom of God. So they don't pray for individual needs or spiritual escapism. What was the key to, the, to Jewish prayer, to Jesus' prayer, to his disciples' prayer? Submission to God's kingdom. Their passion was that all Israel and all mankind submit to the kingship of God. That all mankind, as well as all Israel, submit to the kingship of God. They're praying that the wicked be pulled down and God's righteous reign would prevail. And that's not that much different than what we're praying, I think. When we pray, God, use those leaders throughout the world and use the leaders in our country, and as you use them, may they bow the knee to you and not to themselves. Not to outside interests, but they may, may they do your will. That's what we're praying. That's what Israel was praying they looked and prayed for the day when the whole world would recognize God as king. Frederick Beekner suggests that the kingdom of God is not a place, but a condition. Kingship might be the better word. He also notes the connection between your kingdom come and your will be done when he writes, Insofar as here and there and now and then God's kingly will is being done in various odd ways among us, even at this moment, the kingdom has come already. Insofar as all the odd ways we do his will at this moment are at best half-baked and half-hearted, the kingdom is still a long way off. In other words, the kingdom's here, and it is working, and we see glimpses of it, and we saw more glimpses of it when Jesus was on earth, but it's a long ways to come when we look at our world and say, yeah, amen, come Lord Jesus, like you did the first time, and continue your work of growing your kingdom. And that gets into what I want to say next. Based on Jewish prayers and Old Testament scriptures, Brad Young has rewritten the Lord's Prayer in its likely Hebrew form. A few weeks ago, I showed you a picture of this. It was actually a picture of my T-shirt that I got at one of Brad Young's conferences that had the Lord's Prayer in Hebrew. And this particular phrase, your kingdom come, he, Brad suggests, would have been the Hebrew tamlik melkutka, which means literally, may you continue establishing your kingdom. May you continue establishing your kingdom. The kingdom doesn't just show up and that's it. The kingdom is gradual. May you continue. It's a process, first of all. The Hebrew language emphasizes the kind of action, not the timing. The dynamic force of God's eternal kingship is being realized as his will is being done on earth as in heaven. That is, God's will being done is an evidence of his rule. 
and also suggests the scope of his rule. When his will is finally and totally done, the kingdom will have come fully. The kingdom coming is a process taking place. The gradual progression of the kingdom movement as it's represented today in the lives of his people, us. So we are part of the kingdom of God, and we are part of seeking to extend and spread that kingdom. But the focus in the Hebrew Melkutka is also on the person who rules. And the particular form of the verb can mean to make someone king, which it does uh, when it talks about Solomon in 1 Chronicles 21 or 28. When Israel made Solomon king. So the prayer is also, in a sense, about making God our king. Making God our king. Acknowledging his kingship. Saying, Lord, I want you to be king over me. So all this to say, what does it mean to pray your kingdom come personally? Two things. So if you've, if you've been, missed all the rest of what I said, wake up now and get these two things. What does it mean to pray your kingdom come personally? We're praying, first, Jesus, continue to rule this world. Continue to rule this world. To pray this is to join Israel of old, to join Jesus and his disciples in asking God to continue to penetrate into the hearts and lives of people in this world so that we can begin to see the evidence of it, which is his will being done. It's to pray that at the feet of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Jesus, continue to rule this world. But secondly, Jesus, come and rule my life. Come and rule my life. More personally, it's to ask God through Jesus to continue penetrating our hearts and lives. The kingdom has to come more fully in us too. Not just in other people out there. The kingdom has to come more fully in all of us so that we can increasingly see the evidence of his will being done by us. It is to pray, Jesus, be my Lord and King. I give my life to you. Rule over me as you will. Is that what we're praying when we pray your kingdom come? Frederick Buechner continues thinking particular about Jesus' kingdom parables and what they reveal about what is the kingdom of God. He says, as a poet, Jesus is maybe at his best in describing the feeling you get when you glimpse the thing itself. By thing, I think he means kingdom here. It's like finding a million dollars in a field or a jewel worth the king's ransom. It's like finding something you hated to lose and thought you'd never find again, an old keepsake, a stray sheep, a missing child. When the kingdom really comes, it's as if the thing you lost and thought you'd never find again is you. Now, he's not saying the kingdom is you, but you are part of the kingdom. If you confess that God is Lord alone, if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you do, then praying that the kingdom may come is about praying, God, continue to change my life so that my, your will is increasingly done, eventually perfectly, by me eternally. Let's pray for that. Lord, 
your kingdom come increasingly on earth so that it reflects heavenly reality. And Lord, may your kingdom rule advance in our hearts and lives, beginning with me. Amen. One of the things we talked about is that God, in a sense, we're saying, uh, God, I'm going to crown you as my king. I want to acknowledge your kingship and make you my king. And that's what we're doing in this closing song, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Would you stand as we sing that together?